Hi everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of the Cirque Roads and Monsoon Winds podcast, a podcast where we look at everything modern Asia. I'm your host Imran, you can follow me on Twitter at MalayBoy97. In this episode, we are looking at the Indo-Pakistan rivalry, especially in light of the recent series of incidents which occurred between both countries in mid to late February. We will also delve into the Kashmir conflict, the main sticking point in the relationship between both countries. Joining me for this episode is Hari Prasad, an independent researcher on Middle East and South Asian politics and security, where he focuses on extremism, non-state actors, and counterinsurgencies. Uh, Hari earned his Bachelor of Arts from Marquette University, where he double majored in international affairs and economics, and earned his master's degree from George Washington University, where he focused on Middle East and South Asian politics and security, and wrote his thesis on the effects that pro-government militias have on Indian counterinsurgency operations. Hari has previously interned and worked at the State Department, Marquette Center for Peacemaking, the Hudson Institute, the United States Institute of Peace, and taught English in the West Bank at some point. I first started off this episode by asking Hari how he got interested in researching terrorism, and he talked about his personal experiences with terrorism growing up as a child in America in the aftermath of 9-11 attacks. Because, like, of course, uh, growing up in the United States, probably the most, like, formative political event that happened was the September 11th attacks. And, mm-hmm. and of course, like, you know, that caused, like, a huge thing of terrorism. But, like, also, like, from where we were, we were, like, we were, like, the only, like, one of the only Indian families in Wisconsin, where we were living in Wisconsin. Uh, like, the, the atmosphere affected us a lot differently. So I remember, like, even, like, in the first week after the attacks, except for, like, when they drove us to school, like, we did not go anywhere out. out. And I remember, like, how even my mom, like, the day of 9-11, she went out to, like, get medicine for my brother. And she described it being, like, the scariest thing she's ever did just because of the way everybody looked at her. And the way they, like, almost seemed like they are about to lynch her or mob her or something like that. How he proceeds to talk about how he became interested in international affairs, choosing to focus on India, and in particular, terrorism in India. And initially, when I started getting international affairs, cause I could tell you, like, the... There's one person who got me into international affairs, and it's Fareed Zakaria. Hmm. Yeah, CNN wrote, contributor, right? Wait, what? They're CNN contributor. He's... Yeah, yeah. So at the time, he wasn't even CNN. He was just on Newsweek. Um, yeah. Because uh, uh, he wrote an article in 2007, 2008 <laughs> called like the the rise of the rest, and that was like even though like I had been traveling to India for so long. I never thought of like India as like this like rising economy, like this like powerful con- like this rising power in the world. Hmm. So like for me, like that completely opened my eyes because like you know my parents were very stereotypically Indian. They wanted me to become an engineer or doctor, so they did not have any focus on politics <laughs> hmm. at all. But this like you know, I mean in national politics at least. So like this really opened my eyes to like oh wow like this is really interesting. As a result, that started reading, 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 and then like I got into international affairs in my college. And like initially, I thought I was going to be like a grand. I was going to be like the next Henry Kissinger. I was going to be grand strategist. So I was going to know about every single country in the world. <laughs> mm. I realized that I realized that, you know very quickly on that's not realistic. So I started like you know studying Arabic in um, my undergrad, and then I realized like besides Middle East, just South Asia, like especially India itself, is such a fascinating country. Just from like as like if you're like a student of international affairs like it's hard to deny like india is like this huge country has so many ethnicities languages and all that stuff mm. and how it all works together just like sometimes like just thinking about it, it just completely blows my mind like how it's been extremely successful in one sense mm. and because of like, the interest of like that drove me to national affairs like 
the terrorism, terrorism non-state, non-state actors, insurgency, counterinsurgency, like that's kind of what inspired me. Like, you know what? I need to look at India. And like the fact that like today, I would say like, especially in the United States, India's like conflicts, except for maybe Kashmir is now like, well, well examined, despite the mm-hmm. fact like it has like a lot of conflicts, a lot of places we could learn from. And mm-hmm. also just a really fascinating country. Me and Howie proceeded to discuss the latest series of engagements between India and Pakistan, which took place in mid to late February. To recap, on February 14th, a suicide attack was carried out against an Indian military convoy in the Pulwama area of Kashmir, killing at least 40 soldiers. Later, a Pakistan-based militant group called Jaishi Muhammad claimed responsibility for the attack. On February 26, India in response launched airstrikes against what they claimed was a terrorist training facility associated with Jaishi Muhammad in the town of Balakot. Indian media later claimed they had killed some 300 terrorists. In response, the next day Pakistan launched its own airstrikes on what they called non-military targets in Indian territory. A dogfight ensued between Indian and Pakistani fighter jets during which one Indian jet was shot down into Pakistani territory. A pilot was captured and later repatriated back to India on March 1st as a sign of goodwill by Pakistan. I first asked Harry who he ultimately thought came out the victor in his latest incident. Not, not necessarily in terms of media optics, but rather in a strategic sense. There's people who claim like, like oh, India won it because like, you know, like India crossed a completely new threshold. Uh, it's so that it had like the the possible it could actually it was willing and possibly able to like reach all the way deep into Pakistan because like like Balakot's not like in Pakistan held Kashmir it's all the way in in like Khyber Pakhtunkhwa so that's actually pretty deep in Pakistan pretty deep in Pakistan mm. and so like that's why like people were saying like oh like India won this in my own opinion that I don't think that's really true because like so diplomatically yeah India I could say like probably won the had won this tactical battle. But and the larger, of course, you said like you mentioned PR, like media. Like I think like Pakistan actually came off looking a lot better. But also like I'm not entirely convinced that like things have changed because essentially Pakistan has showed like we are willing to go f- as far as India is willing to go. But India still has not found a way to really deter us at the subconventional level, which mm. is like what started this whole like dog like this back and forth anyway. Anyway. Mm. And it's like it's like the same problem like when like the, India had the surgical strikes in twenty sixteen, mm. where a lot one like even when you look back into operations like it was purely a very tactical thing, like they they didn't hit any like actual training camps they hit purely launch pads so like it's mm. not like theirs were like set structures that like had a very very important militants or terrorists and whatever that, but rather like temporary structures to like help people get across the border, mm. but. For like, wait, I think too much of like the dialogue, or at least the popular dialogue, was like, we did this, we showed Pakistan we were able to do this, but like, Pakistan still continued <clears throat> continued his policy. And I think it might have even es- escalated. If I remember the numbers correctly, it might have even escalated after that. So mm. ultimately, I think whether we'll see in the next couple of months what actually happens. But I think like right now, like it's too early to say India won. And I think right now it's looking more like a stalemate than anything else. Mm. Which and 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 in this case, like a stalemate's not what India wants because it needs to actually deter Pakistan from using this stuff in the future. So a stalemate works in Pakistan's favor, in my opinion.
Now, a lot of scholars have claimed, have stated that India's response to the Pulwama attack and the airstrikes were pretty unprecedented. And like you said, it was not like the the uh, the surgical strikes after the Uri attacks in 2016, which took place in disputed Kashmir. This was strikes yeah. in Pakistan proper. Like, mm-hmm. what do you think compelled India to kind of raise the threshold and kind of raise its 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 risk levels? Because like I was even thinking like before like, India launched the airstrikes was like it can't do another surgical strikes because Pakistan knows it's looking for that, mm. and if it does another surgical strikes, people in like whether it's the BJP's base or just a wider base, like they know like oh this is not going to do it, and like also like India has been facing like sponsored terrorism for a long time. Like people have been wanting like actual like sincere sincere action, and mm. I think like going okay like surgical strikes did not do anything to like deter Pakistan so we need to make an actual decision it's like uh, I forgot to, I'm trying to remember what the word for this is but like it's part of like this giant game of like India, I think a part of it is like India is trying to figure out what is the limit of how much they can push Pakistan while keeping it relatively under control is this a uh, brick, brickmanship brickman yeah I think they're trying to figure out brickmanship still mm. uh, like saying how far can we go with po- like in this issue without like you no know, risking out conventional war or even nuclear conflict god forbid mm. so I think like at, it was at the point where like they decided like, we had to send like a serious message, not only just to like Pakistan, but and to Jaisi Muhammad, but like our own population too. I asked Harry if India had a political incentive to launch the strikes in light of the upcoming general elections in April. I mean, so as as far as I'm concerned, like, I think there's a, sm- a small part of it that played, in like maybe the BJP's thinking, but I, don't, I would not say. Personally, that was like the the driving factor, the main driving factor behind. It. I think like the driving factor was like they're trying to deter the strikes, and like we know like this government has taken a much more hardline approach in some senses hmm. to they say we won't, we're not tolerate, we're not tolerating this anymore. Hmm. So, and I think like the reality is like regardless of what happened, whether it's like another surgical strikes or some other attack, it would have been politicized by all the parties, and like we see that right now, like the BJP is like trying to say we want the Balakut strikes, we're the ones who are doing this, and, like, they're apparently going to make a movie out of this, but <laughs> I don't think, I don't think that's going to be, the, I don't think that was the main pushing factor of that. The Pakistani government recently announced they were going to crack down on the Jaishin Muhammad faction within its borders. I asked Harry if he thought this announcement was sincere, or was this another example of what former Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. Hussein Nakani refers to as the Musharraf playbook? which is when Pakistan acts like a victim, promises action, but ultimately does very little to stop terrorism. Um, but I do, I do agree with uh, Hussein Akhani, Ambassador Khani that, yeah, they're playing the Pakistani, the Musarif playbook, because, like, what, they arrested Azhar, but then he's back out, he's back out on the streets. Hmm. And, like, I think, like, a lot of the major courses, courses like, that happened to it, uh, court, yeah, the court cases, they recently brought up were all dismissed or something like that, at least mm-hmm. against some of the major figures. And like, if they're like really, really serious about it, like, going, okay, like, we don't know what the camp India targeted. I don't think there's been good evidence like th- that the camp was destroyed. Mm-hmm. However, I don't see Pakistan like actually closing down the camp. They say they took control, but I haven't seen anyone actually said, like, well, the camp is actually closed down or the or transit camp closed down. And like, and I was like discussing this with someone else before, like whether Imran Khan has a say in this, and I honestly don't know if he has a say, and I actually don't know 
how he feels about like Jason Muhammad or Lashkar Taiba, those groups. But like, as far as I see it, there hasn't been like a real, imp- for like two reasons. Like, I don't think the anything in this incident would suggest like Paxa would need to crack down on these groups at all. Mm. And two, I just think like w- with the situation happening within Paxa right itself, it would be like really, really bad. It would actually be they would the Pakistani military part thinking like even if we did want to crack down, which I don't think they're thinking about. I think they would say like, okay, it would be too suicidal for us to actually crack down on these groups. But what does Pakistan actually hope to accomplish with with using these proxy groups? Um, is is it they want to f- foment unrest in Kashmir to to get international attention, or is it to acquire territory? What exactly do they hope to do with these proxy groups? It's like a mix of motivation. So I and like also report now like it's not just like um it's not just like international factors motivating them. It's a lot of domestic factors motivating them too. Cause like let's go. And then I think Christine Fair's work has been like done a really great job that even if like somehow Kashmir was no longer on the table, like Laskar Taiba is too important domestically for Pakistan to ever crack down on it. Cause like it provides schools, it provides a lot of welfare networks. Mm. And a lot of militant groups have like these play important, like kind of like, I guess you could say political roles that they can like help take up Pakistan's rivals um, like there's even suggestions in like Baluchistan, like a lot of Salafi groups have like the implicit backing of the Pakistani state in Saudi Arabia to help kill other Baluchis. So that way it could like help bring Baluchistan under control. Uh, but in terms of towards Kashmir, I think it's like one, like they've long time, they've been wanting to acquire Kashmir. So like, I don't actually think they can, they believe they can acquire Kashmir through like the use of these proxies, but they believe that they can like, cause enough foment and unrest to like, have Kashmiris now want to be part of India, and two, mm. like, uh, it helps and it helps interna- internationalize the whole problem because, like, the especially now that in both India and Pakistan are like nuclear powers, and Pakistan's like continuous policy of like supporting groups in Kashmir, like it does like cause this thing, cause like the warrior, like what happens if this escalates? Like, even like with the recent incident, like. I remember, like a lot of us here in DC, were asking, like, "Oh my God, like, they conducted airstrikes against each other. What happens next? Like, who's going to stop like the brickman brickmanship? Because like you can't. At the end, they like one of the things I had a problem with the Indi- like a lot of Indian assumptions was like they assumed like the game of brickmanship was a one person game. That Pakistan mm-hmm. would start this thing off with like a state sponsored attack. So then India would respond, and that's that. Mm-hmm. But they keep on forgetting that like Pakistan's another actor. So of course they're going to respond too. And and that caused like a lot of worries. Like, okay, like if Pakistan's going to do this, it's a warrior of the international committee because like India does not want the Kashmir issue internationalized. Mm. Pakistan, Pakistan does. So I think that's one reason. Two is also like there's like a lot of legit worries. Uh, some overstated, some not overstated that the Pakistani military isn't much weaker than the Indian military is. So like they need the help of these non-state actors to like confront India. I think like uh, what was the phrase they used? Like it was like death by it was this part of their strategy of death by a thousand cuts. Mm, so we're kind of just um, weakening India over time, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, weakening India over time, and also like part of like this rationale it comes goes back to the 1971 war, where in 1971, you know, when Pakistan faced a civil war, India intervened and like you know created Bangladesh or all of that. <laughs> And like a lot among a lot of Pakistan military, there there is this, like this really strong desire for re- revenge, and part of like the uh, what India did at the time was 
uh, support the Bang- the Bengali resistance, the Mukti Bahini. Mm. And so there's like some element of the Pakistan military who says like, we need to do the same thing. Like we will like avenge, we'll get like a will avenge what happened in 1971 through like acquiring Kashmir. The region of Kashmir has been the main bone of contention between India and Pakistan since the independence of both countries in 1947. As well, the region is currently suffering from a 30-year-long insurgency, which has seen thousands killed in almost daily incidents of shootings and bombings. Many Indian officials blame Pakistan for their unrest, claiming that their intelligence services have been providing support to the insurgents. I asked Hari if this argument is fair to make, or could the insurgency also be blamed on poor Indian governance and a failure of counterinsurgency strategy? Oh, I think like... Like in order, like Pakistan, I guess the best way to put it, like Pakistan is throwing fuel in the flames, but there's mm. already flames. There, there were already flames to begin with. Mm. Like, so like I like to bring up the example of the 1965 war. So like in the 1965 war to acquire Kashmir, Pakistan started sneaking in a lot of uh, irregular troops, mm. like to like go to Kashmir, started like a domestic uprising, and then like Pakistan would use that as an excuse to like intervene and like you know conquer Kashmir. Mm. But what happened instead was like as Pakistan was doing this, local Kashmiris actually told the Indian military like, hey, the Pakistanis are coming in. And that's what starts the nineteen sixty five war. In con- in contrast, like uh the uprising that began began in like really nineteen eighty nine, nineteen eighty seven, depending on what, what year you want to use, was like purely domestic and was like a cause of like what India did instead. And I think Pakistan like took advantage of that. Like they've been using this to take advantage of it, because like for them, like Kashmir is just as much as an ideological issue as anything else. Mm. Uh and so I think like Indians, there's like a lot of like Pakistan deserves part of blame, but I think like the problem with the Indians is they put too much blame on the Pakistanis to recognize what's actually happening and their own failures within the Kashmir Valley itself. I asked Harvey what India's counterinsurgency strategy has been in Kashmir whether it emphasizes military force, population-centric policies, or a combination of both. Hari explains to me India's counterinsurgency doctrine, referred to as the Doctrine of Subconventional Operations, or DSCO. Okay. It essentially deals with like, how India thinks about like subconventional conflict. It was like released uh, relatively recently, in 2000. So like, according, if you, look at that, if you look at that doctrine, and the, keep in mind, this is specifically Indian military, like the Indian army, because like oh uh, that's an important part I'll get to in a little bit but like so to them it's like both military force and but also like you know wham hearts winning the hearts and minds so very similar to like how the U.S. would say it is mm. in real in reality though I would say like the problem is it's been like it's been excessive use of like security forces with like little effort to political uh for political self political effort so like mm. especially in the early years of the Kashmir insurgency, it was a very, very, very hard response that there was like this real emergency that the Indians perceived mm. they needed needed to do. Like they felt like they actually were going to lose Kashmir within the overnight. But so the governor of Kashmir at the time, uh, I remember because I wrote in my thesis that like he literally believed that this was not like a, a Indian, like this wasn't due to Indian failure, but this was purely, purely uh a Pakistani conspiracy, and mm. that everybody on the streets were like just Pakistanis or being paid by the Pakistanis, so they're fair game. Mm. And as a result, like they just used a purely like security effort. And it wasn't until like uh really 
they la launched Operation, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Operation Sadbavana, mm -hmm. to, which was like, this is where like, they're supposedly winning the hearts and, mind, hearts and minds of people. Mm. And there's like, some effort like they're, they are putting some effort behind this. And it's like, this was launched in 1988, 1998. But I think in reality, like the way most Kashmiris would see it, like this has been a purely military effort. Violence in Kashmir peaked in 2016, following the death of a militant commander named Bohan Wani. Hari gives a brief chronology of the changing character of the insurgency, as well as discusses how the increasing militarization of the region only inflames the situation further and upsets the locals. Do you see, as it's portrayed, there's like three stages of the Kashmir insurgency. Mm. Uh, there's the initial years led by, like you could say, the JKLF, the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, which was... I would say nominally secular, but mm. in reality, you could like you could debate that. But like, they were initially they were, like they wanted full independence for Kashmir, like from both India and Pakistan, India and Pakistan. But uh, you know, both like India started gaining control of the situation, and Pakistan like did not like these guys, so they kind of undermined the JKLF. Plus, so this led to the second the second phase, which was led by uh Hezbollah Mujahideen, mm. which which Burhan Wani was part of. But the important thing, and this like happened in 1991, 1992, and last you could say lasted roughly till to like late 90s, early 2000s. But so the but the important thing of these first two stages is that this was a the insurgency was primarily done by Kashmiris, because mm. like after that you have like instead of, like you have Lashkar groups like Lashkar Taiba, Jason Muhammad, etc. taking over. And these are groups primarily made of people who are not Kashmiris. They're like Punjabis, uh, mm. Pashtuns, or for other foreign fighters. But and but what now we're, what you're saying that kind of scary is like with the of course like the death of Burhan Wani, but like even like the recent deaths of people who are being recruited, uh, who are being killed are primarily Indian Kashmiris. Mm. And uh, there's like yeah, portraying on security forces because like the nature the nature of like the conflict has changed, and like uh, I know like I saw you did this for your last podcast that you had recommended books and readings. There's like this very uh, excellent book that came out recently by David Davidas called "The Generation of Rage in Kashmir." Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a it's a fantastic book to understand like what's happening in Kashmir like nowadays, and it's like how you have these civilians who are just very like you have because right now you have like a whole generation of kids who have grown up knowing nothing but like Indian soldiers on the streets. Like the mm. in the ninety in the nineties, early two thousands, a lot of Kashmiris could remember like could actually point out like, okay, we didn't have like we didn't feel like we were living under our occupation. Mm. We knew days where like, you know, there wasn't like checkpoints and this and that. But like a lot of people growing like like Burhan Wani or all his comp like compatriots a lot of people like who are either joined the insurgency or like supporting the insurgency, they are people like younger than definitely younger than us who don't remember growing up in an environment like that. All they know is like conflict, and especially within like two thousand, like I'll say like two thousands to like twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, like violence was relatively low in Kashmir, mm. but you still had as many Indian security forces on the streets, which of course like. After a while, like if you're growing up in that, it's going to feel oppre oppressive. Not like it's not what the environment you want to be growing up in. So and like they're becoming influ a lot. Like a lot of 
Kashmir's are becoming influenced, like what they see on TV, like Storm, like Storm during Palestine, like the same narr- narratives and stuff like that. And so, like, there are, because now we know, like, happening in a lot of, like, when the security forces are doing a lot of operations, that they face the trouble of, like, people, like, pelting stones at them. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to know, like, um, has the Kashmir conflict been kind of like, uh, like what we've seen in, like, the southern Philippines, for example, where, like, it started off as kind of like a purely nationalist uprising and it just increasingly became more religious in character? Yeah, so I mean, there is that. So like, so JKF, JK, JKLF, like I mentioned, was nominally secular. Hmm. Um, like, of course, like, you know, they're nominally secular. They were like responsible for like the ethnic, you call it ethnic cleansing or whatever, like are the Kashmiri pundits from the valley. Hmm. And like, even like, um, I'm thinking the initial years of the conflict, the initial like two or three years of the conflict, half the people killed by the JKLF were Kashmiri pundits. And just keep in mind, like Kashmiri pundits are only 5% of the population. So mm. there was like, so the, there was a lot of indication, like, you know, these guys are specifically targeted. But that said, like, with the, when you lost the JKLF, what you guys, the next group that came was the Hezbollah Mujahideen. The Hezbollah Mujahideen was like unapologetically Islamist. It was like, because like, uh, they were heavily connected to the Jammu Islamic Party in Jammu Kashmir. Mm. Um, then once like they're gone, you have like Lashkar Taiba and Jamad, I mean Jason Muhammad, sorry Jason Muhammad, and Lashkar Taiba as a Salafi Ali Hadith group, while Jason Muhammad is a Diobandi group. So like there has been like this like increasingly religization of like the conflict, but that's uh, that said like I think like the main fail of a the problem with like, a lot of Indian politicians and a lot of Indian analysts and commentators is that they tend to like just say like, oh, if it wasn't for like Islamicism or whatever, the Kashmir conflict wouldn't have happened. Mm. So it's like a combination of both nationalism and especially now more so than in the past, like a form of like, Islamic identity. Mm. Since the election of Narendra Modi and the BJP party in 2014, many pundits have pointed to this observed rise in Hindu nationalism in India. I asked Hari whether this has contributed to the increasing feeling of alienation felt on the part of many Kashmiris. Oh yeah, like so I remember so for my thesis I talked to like uh two I talked to like what was it? Uh two three people total, but only two of them let me like use their words in my thesis. They're like, you know, real they're like nowadays they live here in the West, but you know, they grew up in the conflict. They're and I think by and large their entire thing was like they're Kashmir separatists. And they were like point out like okay you know like we always have this complaint about India like we want to be separatists we want it kind of to be independent, but definitely the BJP has brought like a whole new level. The Article three seventy that's like in the Indian Constitution that gives like some autonomy to Kashmir was, uh, for a lo- one like a lot of Kashmiris have their own like perception of like how Article three seventy has been like undermined by the Indian government, but then like the BJP is explicitly like that they want to like Hindu Hindu nationals are explicitly that we want to get rid of Article three seventy and like pa- and pass some other laws. Because so, like right now like technically speaking it's hard it's really difficult to own land. I don't know if it's impossible, but like technically by law it should be impossible like to own land if you're not Kashmiri. Mm. It's actually it's actually not related to Article three seventy. It's actually from like earlier laws passed before when pass from that to like stop rich Punjabis from coming in but uh there is like this thing of like okay like the BJP not only are they explicitly like giving us autonomy but they're also explicitly anti-Muslim 
and like this is like there is like this thing of like okay this is drive like hindutva it is driving like this kind of fear of like okay like what's our place in india mm. as a muslim as like muslim majority state for like for ideology that does not want muslims I proceeded to ask Hari whether the rise of Hindu nationalism has affected relations between Kashmir's Muslim majority and its Hindu minority, the latter often referred to as pundits. In a sense, yeah, because so, uh, there's like some really good books about this. Like, so I can recommend uh, Rahul, Rahul Pandita. He's like a journalist from Kashmir. He's actually a, a Kashmir pundit who wrote a fantastic book called Our Moon Has Blood Clots. About it's about the story of him and his family because since he was growing up in that period, he and his family were part of the people who fled Kashmir because mm. of like during his like this phase of ethnic cleansing, mm. and he he made this point like because even though I would not say he's a Hindu nationalist because he definitely has like a like it's a very traumatic period and stuff like that, but like he made this really good point like you know during a time when like especially right after the like the ethnic cleansing happened, like the general left in India completely failed to acknowledge what was happening mm. and I like, completely ignored Kashmir Pandits and instead what has happened is that the Hindutva groups that BJ like RSS, BJP, they capitalized on that and they're going through camps trying to recruit Hindu pundits. Mm. And like you could you can argue whether like reality these guys actually care about Hindu pundits more than like a talking point. But mm. like there's like this thing like for a lot of there are like a lot of Hindu pundits who are like right wing Hindutva right wing Hindutvas are very supportive of Driving Hindutvas and you're like, okay, we have seen like what Islamic terrorism really is, so therefore we need to support these guys. And I think that's that has actually contributed more, like, kind of to like the bigger divide between like Kashmiri Muslims and Kashmiri uh, pundits mm. and like Hindus in general. Especially what we saw like after Pulwama and Balakot and everything like that was in Jammu. Now, I mean, throughout India, like a lot of Kashmiris were being Kashmiri Muslims were being attacked, but even in Jammu. Like uh, Kashmir Muslims were being attacked by like Kashmir Hindus. So, mm. one way India would legitimize its rule in Kashmir would be through holding regular elections. However, recently, many elections have been continuously postponed. I asked Hari whether we are seeing a receding of the democratic space in Kashmir. Um, that's the worry. So, like, uh, you know, like, so partially, like, you know, like they had the uh. You know, they made a recent announcement when the Indian elections in general throughout the country supposed to be held. Mm. And, like, there's actually this controversy happening right now about, like, when the Kashmiri elections are going to be held because... Um, and so it's interesting. So Omar Abdullah, who by any measure is, like, a pro mainstream politician, pro-India, uh, secular... Like, I remember watching this interview because he's absolutely furious because, like... Apparently, there because like you know like a lot of BJP like the you know of course the government in Kashmir collapsed because it was a it was like a lot a coalition of the BJP and the PDP the People's Democratic Party, mm. which who in one sense are very opposite sides of the spectrum, mm. like so I I mean like I don't think anyone really expected that coalition to work but you know collapse now there's like governor's rule now there's president's rule, but you know like right now like I think. From what like a lot of Kashmir politicians were promised that the election would be held very early on, mm. it seems like right now like that election has been delayed, mm. and that's actually really really infuriating because like so in the initial years of insurgency, they held the election in 1987, which was heavily rigged, and the next election they held was in 1996, which is a uh, way too long of a space of time for a democratic country like India, and now like the, there is like the general fear like. 
right now and like the fact like the elections in Casimir keep on getting delayed over and over and over again is that like we're going to see another period we're going to see like another period like the 90s where like the civilians didn't really have power didn't really have power and like this is along like other groups to like kind of like like you said strengthen the democratic space so I think like that's actually a very real fear right now. But the the rationale that they give is like, oh, we don't have enough security forces to secure the area <laughs> to help elections. Um, and like so, I remember and like the, this happened like, again like this, just in the last week. Omar Abdullah would say like we were asserted by the Home Minister himself that like no matter what like they would not have separate they would not have separate election for Kashmir. Like India would be done in Kashmir would be done in the same phase as these uh, other. Uh, hmm states because like the security situation would be handled but now they said they had to delay it so they could like make sure like the other phases are done and they have all the security personnel which could possibly lead to it as Howie explains many Kashmiris expressed their dissatisfaction with the state of affairs by boycotting elections often leading to terrible turnouts also like we don't know what the voter turnout is going to be like mm. so like the last time, like Kashmir had like a major state election, not twenty fourteen, but like I forgot what the I forget the year right now. But like that actually saw like pretty high turnout because they were like a lot of Kashmir Muslims were afraid of like the BJP coming to power in the state. But there's like the fear, like okay, like a lot of Kashmir state elections. I mean, a lot of Kashmir elections have like really horrific horrific turnout because like it represents like a very big dissatisfaction with. The process in Kashmir, Kashmir. Yes, as and, I understand, there was a recent, uh, there was a by-election in Srinagar in, uh, I, yeah. I think, April 2017, and it was like a six percent turnout, right? Yeah, and exactly, exactly, like it's like really pathetic turnout, turnout. And I, I know, like, I don't think like anyone's going to openly say like, oh, this like the, the turnout doesn't matter to us. I think like, yeah, like if you have six percent turnout like, or low turnout. That like speaks really, really badly, especially for a lot of like the Indian narratives. Is if you say like these elections prove that Kashmir's want to be proved part of India, if no one's voting, like that's pretty embarrassing in Indian state. So hopefully, like they're still holding elections and hopefully people to come out to vote. But we'll see ultimately. With India's upcoming general elections in April, I asked Harry whether we might see any change in New Delhi's stance towards the Kashmir situation. Uh. If I'm feeling hopeful, I would hope it, it would change. But I, unfortunately, right now, think like there's a whole new momentum carrying it towards further conflict. And right now, like I read, I don't know honestly, like of any like political leader. Cause, like so, more than anything, like I'll, I'll like the argument I've made before is like, regardless of what Pakistan does, Kashmiris are like Indian citizens, mm-hmm. and ultimately, like the the duty of any democratic society is to respond to its citizens. If you're not, and like, a Pakistan can only interf- intervene because of dissatis- like this huge dissatisfaction. So the question for me is like, now what can you do to stop Pakistan? Because going, that's part of policy. But yes, but you got to figure out how to like placate the Kashmiris themselves. And like, more importantly, like you did have a period before where like the domestic, like the homegrown insurgency, as you will, was dead, and it was like primarily foreign fighters. But you never cap. But no policymaker I know of, like, like there's like no, there was no real policymaker who actually capitalized on that, saying, "Hey, let's restart politics." Let's show like Kashmiris, like there is like a better, like that they should be part of India. We need to restart politics. Like we've turned to civilian life, and honestly, I 
see Kashmir still like spiraling out of control and probably getting worse. Not as bad as like the 90s, but I, I don't see the situation improving. I also asked him if we might see any changes in Indo-Pakistan relations post-election. I mean, not really, because like at the end of the day, like I don't like uh, one thing is like Modi has not faced a lot of criticism overall. Overall, I would say like towards the stance of Pakistan, the fact like because I of course, like you know people make fun of like his trips and stuff like that, mm. but overall, like I think uh, there's like more con- broad consensus. By like a lot of Indians, like yeah, we need to have a tougher hand on Pakistan. One thing the Modi government was like demonstrating is like okay, like a lot of Indians are sick of Pakistan. He's like as far as they're concerned, whether it be Imran Khan or Nawaz Sharif in power, that these guys don't ultimately hold the hands to like make India safer. Like it's the military that holds power, and I don't see the military really changing the policy. And I've I, as I as I see it, and I could with everything I'm saying, I could definitely be wrong on this, but like. I don't see, if the military is not going to change, I don't see like India fundamentally changing its policy now. Harry lives and works in D.C., where the movers and shakers of American foreign policy currently reside. As a final question, I asked Harry whether he thinks there's any role for the U.S. with regards to the Indo-Pakistan rivalry, as well as with the ongoing Kashmir crisis. So, on the first part of the question of, like, do like, do they see a role for America? Uh, yes and no. So, like, if you look at the Indian point of view, they explicitly do not want India, I mean, the United States to be involved in, like, say, negotiations of what happened to Kashmir. Because as far as, like, India is concerned, that's purely a bilateral issue, and there shouldn't be any international intervention. But that said, so, like, one of the weird things is, like, both among Indians and Pakistanis, is assumption that, like, if, like, things between India and Pakistan start escalating... Like that country, like the United States or Russia, or about the United States, that the, it will be the United States that comes in and de-escalates the situation. So, uh, there's like a book by Moed Yusuf, which pretty much, uh, who's like a, a Pakistani analyst at USIP, who pretty much like say in his thing of like examining like these like nuclear dynamics between India and Pakistan, pretty much said like, oh yeah, 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 it seems like. I mean, I'm really simplifying here, but like going, yeah, like it seems like a third party, like United States, is what's supposed to be responsible to help make sure like tensions between India and Pakistan get out of con- don't get out of control and escalate mm-hmm. beyond the control. Mm-hmm. On the second part of your question of what well, like what should India, what should the United States do towards Kashmir and stuff like that, like so, I kind of agree with like the general thing, like okay, this needs to be solved by India and Pakistan, and right now, like I don't think like. One, India does not want international intervention. And I don't think it's at the point where Pakistan actually trusts the United States enough. I think it views the United States as being too pro-India to yeah. actually be like, you know, neutral power. And we see, like, especially with Israel-Palestine, how, like, U.S. influence has probably hurt the peace process more than anything else. Mm. Uh, but I think, like, what it should do, of course, like, keep a vigilant eye, make sure, like, tensions don't escal- escalate out of control. But also, like, just on the Pakistani side, like, a lot of stuff, like, with the policy of extremism for like the longest time, especially in the, even in the post 9-11 war era, the U.S. essentially helped subsidize Pakistan sponsoring these proxies and stuff like that mm-hmm. and helped empower dictators. Like, so I remember even like, uh, I'm not going to say, I, I'm not allowed to say where I got this from, but like how essentially like the Americans would rather deal with the military, military people rather than the civilians. Because, like, oh, military people would want to be able to do stuff for us. 
which makes sense. But going also going, but yeah, you're legitimizing military, like military leadership and military control over civilian leadership in Pakistan, and that like, completely undermines civilian rule and that undermines like creating like an actual democratic policy. So I think like the United States has to like stop like funding the military in Pakistan, like stop like providing like sub- it's pretty much essentially subsidizing like the proxies and put pressure on like these proxies. Many thanks to Howie Prasad for appearing on today's episode. You can follow him on Twitter at HowiePrasad91. Details in the description below. Have a good one, folks.